Fantastic. Now, I've, I've prepared the first eight chapters of Sun and the Star. Was that, is that what you guys are discussing? That's, I've been instructed. Yes. That's oh, my God. Okay. We have to. I'm freaking out. We have to. Okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everyone, to our second episode on the Sun and the Star and also a very special episode because whomsoever was at the Trials of Apollo rap party, Zoom extravaganza and or listen to it on Spotify, you know that one young human being won that game and secured a spot on an episode and they also brought with them a special guest. So stick around for conversation and new friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Starting off playing this game where Carter and I think we have new listeners for this book. I'm Erica. Carter, say hi. Hi, I'm Carter. We are the regular (laughs) co-hosts. And today we have two special guests, as Afwar mentioned. First, we've got Maddie, who won trivia. Everyone say hi, Maddie. (laughs) Hello. And we also have Maddie's father. Everyone say hi, Maddie's father. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Should we call you um, Mr. Wild? Should we call you a Tom, Uncle Tom? <laughs> Welcome to both of you. First time here on Seaweed Brain. Um, Maddie, how are you feeling right now? I'm pretty excited. I mean, because I started listening to this podcast a while ago with my sister. And before the live episode, before you guys announced what the prize was, she was talking to me and she was like, reckon there's anywhere we could get on the podcast. And then you guys announced this, and I was so worried that she was going to beat me, but she has finished the trials of Apollo. She gave up after the dark prophecy. <laughs> Wait, I can't believe that you brought one family member to this recording and it wasn't your sister. <laughs> Hi, Maddie's sister. <laughs> she actually on the star. Yeah, I've been hogging our copy. Okay, fair, fair, fair. I remember what that was like when you could like only have one copy of the book in the family at a time. Yeah. Wow. Um, and you guys were just starting to, to tell us about this relationship between yeah. the two of you and this podcast. Um, would you like to, to tell us more about that? Yeah. So basically, I started listening to this podcast, I think maybe November last year. And then I we were we were on holidays in like January and we were on this long drive and I was like dad dad can I can I play you an episode of this podcast I found and he's like okay fine and then I played an episode I think it might have been about the mark of Athena and every five seconds I'm just like dad dad concentrate on driving concentrate on driving (laughs) I think he was laughing because I was explaining that whole thing at the end of Mark of Athena where Nico's like Percy is the most powerful demigod I've ever met and then Jason's kind of just like well, okay, maybe not the most powerful. <laughs> Can I tell you why? One of the reasons I love this podcast so much, um, as I was saying before, I've listened to so much of it because I take Maddie to lacrosse, to lacrosse every week and driving to and driving from, we listen to the podcast. And the the thing is, in, in listening to you guys, 
when I went to, we call college university, when I went to university in Australia, it was this real transition of at school, you're a little bit weird and, you know, it's a bit strange. And then you get to university and you meet all these people that are just like you, that are different like you and that like weird things and that are really smart and talk about these strange things really intelligently. And that's what you guys are like. And it was really nice for Maddie to have that window into this is what's coming. This is this is the people you're going to meet at university. And it's so you guys are really good role models, I suppose is what I'm saying. And it's lovely. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I think it's really sweet. And I just not calling you guys weird. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, my God. I literally just am so embarrassed. I'm like, I'm sorry that we swear on this podcast. <laughs> and I'm fine. I'm Australian. Yeah, there's a lot of that around here. Okay, well... I'm sorry to the non-Australian parents listening to this right now. Um, this is like the craziest experience um, I've ever had. <laughs> I'm so glad that um, both of you could be here. Um, that's wild. No, but I am sorry. I do apologize about everything I've ever said on the internet. <laughs> Don't it. Seriously, you should see my friends. <laughs> um, wow. And you said you haven't read the books. Right, Tom? So I know an awful lot about them because of listening to the podcast. Right. I've now read the first eight chapters of Under Star. Period. little confusing. And, like, it took me a long time to work out why like, Chiron was always riding a horse around. I cottoned on uh, about chapter seven or something. But it's, yeah, it's, but and I sort of, I recognize the characters in Sun of the Star because I've heard you guys talk about them a lot. But there's, there's still oh, a few wow. gaps filling in. Cool. I love this perspective. Oh, wow. This is a really cool, like jumping in at the sun and the star um, and trying to, cause there is like quite a bit of exposition, but even with the exposition that's in there, I mean, there's just so many faces and like callbacks to things. And like, I'm sure that it's a lot. Maddie, do you want to tell us about your, this, I mean, this is a question we always ask our new guests. Like how did you enter into the reared in verse and the Percy Jackson fandom? Okay, so I have this kind of dynamic with my sister where she finds some book or TV show and she really loves it and then I get into it and then I ruin it for her by loving it twice as much. <laughs> I did that same thing to my siblings with um, Harry Potter back in the day. I was like, oh, you like this? I'm going to do it better and more. Exactly. So around maybe like June last year, my sister was reading them and she's like, Maddie, Maddie, you've got to read these. They're so good. And I, and I was eventually like, Okay, and then I started reading them, and I think I read, like, The Lightning Thief in one night. I stayed up till, like, two in the morning and just read the entire thing, and I did the same thing with the next with the next four books to the end of the first series. And then I read Heroes of Olympus, and then I read Trials of Apollo, and I just loved it so much. And I had this whole thing where I was kind of half convinced that if I did, if I said the Pledge of the Hunters that Artemis would magically appear and I could just spend eternity camping with <laughs> So every night I would I would say it in my head before I went to sleep and I was like, this is the night, this is it, it's going to work. And I got oh. over that eventually. And then <laughs> I've read them five times since. Wow. The goal is 15. Yeah. Come on, trivia winner. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe you because you really slayed trivia. Like it was like, <laughs> it was not a close contest. <laughs> um, that's so cool. And I guess you perhaps answered our second question, which is about like godly parent affiliation or like role in the in the reared inverse would you be a hunter of artemis yeah with along with i kind of have three is that all right <laughs> oh please okay the floor is yours hunter of artemis because camping artemis is awesome zoe nightshade rainer thalia like awesome secondly daughter of athena 
because mm-hmm. awesome. obvious. Yeah. And the third thing is legacy of Neptune because Ooh. if Percy Jackson was real, I would definitely be a legacy of Neptune because in the House of Hades, Calypso references that pirate Drake washing up on her island, by which she would mean Sir Francis Drake, who I am descended from. Whoa. Which both of us, my, me and my dad, both canonically legacies of Neptune. Wow. Wow. Australia. That is not an answer I think that we've ever gotten before. <laughs> Wait, I love that for you. Like literally canonically. Yeah. You are present. I am. Oh, wow. Good for you guys. <laughs> Family history. Wow. That's amazing. Carter, are there any other questions I'm supposed to ask? Centaur mentor, maybe? <laughs> oh, well, I, I I think we've already we've already given a name. I think, Tom, you were listening to the audiobook, question mark? I was listening to the audiobook. Yes. So you're forbidden from answering this question. <laughs> <laughs> but, Maddie, how did you say the name of the man who was also a horse? I think I did say it, Chiron, but when, because I had read some Greek myths beforehand because I kind of got into Percy Jackson after I got into mythology. Yeah. But the- Time I encountered his name in mythology, I think it was Chiron. Yeah. Good, good. Good, Me very too. good. Yeah. <laughs> Me three. <laughs> I get corrected a lot because both both of our children have also studied Latin. And mm. so I don't have a leg to stand on. When I'm when I am corrected <laughs> on my pronunciation, I've got nowhere to go and I just have to agree. The other thing about me <laughs> doing Latin is in the Tower of Nero, there's this one thing that I find unbelievably annoying, which is you know how Rick goes, Oh yeah, Meg and Lou are Dimakari? Or Dimakairi, that's wrong because they would have to be male to be Dimakairi. It's Dimakairi because that's the female ending, and Meg is a Dimakaira, not a Dimakairus. You can see yeah. where I'm coming from. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I was trying to nod like I knew exactly what you were talking about, but I'll be very vulnerable here. Are they like, is that like the warrior thing? Yeah, that's the, that's the yeah. sword person. That's their fighting style, except that because it's a Latin thing, you can infer that it would use the correct Latin endings. Yeah. And so she's not a Dimachiris because she's a girl. So she's a Dimachira. But, but no. You should tell Rick that. He needs to know. He could he could he could use that information. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I could literally keep interviewing you guys for like 45 minutes. But I guess we should crack open an our texts, texts. Oh my god! And you have a different cover. <gasps> is it a paperback? It is because I, I t- I'm pretty sure I actually got it a day early because I pre-ordered it from a bookstore, and so I got it on May first, our time, which I think is April thirtieth, your time. It is. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you do live in the future. And so, mum sends me a picture in like my last session of school, and she's like, "Guess what arrived?" And I'm like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." And then my math teacher goes, so I'm assigning you guys double homework for tonight. And you were like, I drop out of, I drop out of high school. Yeah. And I was just like, what the, you can't do that. And so I spent <laughs> homework and started reading it. Wait, do they not do hardcovers in Australia? Because Australia really is superior. They do. What I'm but, hearing. But they do, but I kind of prioritized getting the book as soon as possible over getting the book in hardcover. And I tried to convince dad to go to the, the San Francisco book tour, but it turns out when you go on work trips, you have to actually do work. Yes. <laughs> there was significant right. lobbying to reorganize my work trip around being in San Francisco at exactly the right time, but it was unable <laughs> to, be, to be done. Well, we're lucky that we, be, we made it on a stop on the work trip. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, we have cracked open our books because I think, I don't know if Carter and I mentioned this, but a little behind the scenes knowledge for the listeners is that usually I think you all have heard of our extensive Google Doc outlines that we usually make for these things. But, you know, because we both have the physical books in front of us and also because doing Patreon episodes has really just loosened us up and uh, <laughs> given us more of a free range over our episode recordings, we have not been making outlines for The Sun and the Star. We have been just literally flipping page to page. So here we are opening up our books to page 35, assuming that's standard-ish in the international edition. Uh, if you're in Australia, it's page 37. Just click that. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. Um, this is right after the sequence of nightmares that Nico has had in these like light gray colored pages. Shall we drop in, everybody? Nico! He opened his eyes with a jolt, but couldn't make out the figure looming over him. Nico kicked out with his right leg, unfortunately landing a foot square in his boyfriend's stomach. Will howled and tumbled off the edge of the bed, then curled up on the floor of the Hades cabin. Nico, I swear, he groaned. How do you pack all that energy into your body? That was so real. Yeah, I love that dynamic, particularly in this book. Never underestimate Nico's anemia or anemic people. Um, <laughs> They are still powerful. <laughs> it's interesting. This dream that I that I read through. Mm-hmm. This dream. This is my entire impression of Percy Jackson. Of just this kid that that yeah. had a crush on. He's just mentioned in the side of this guy I had a crush on at some stage. And that's yes. it, Percy Jackson for me. <laughs> Literally the decentering of Percy Jackson. Exactly. I love that. Wow. That is so beautiful. This is Nico's era. And we did really just go through like timeline order. So this was good exposition, um, even though things are different, obviously, in the dream than how they actually happened. This is a, I, I put my little orange sticky note here to denote an important Solangelo moment because we're establishing their relationship, right, in these first chapters, really like canonically, because as we talked about in our like Solangelo episode recently, like we don't really know a lot about their dynamic. Mm. Um, we've predicted a lot. We've all headcanoned a lot. But here we have, Nico waking up from a nightmare and Will saying, can I hold you? Would that be okay with you? I died. I actually, like, I, I, I dropped the book. <laughs> I just kind of curled up into a pillow screaming. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is good. Like, it's so it's so tender. And, and he the asking is so important because we also, you know, there was a little tidbit in that nightmare about how Nico doesn't like to be touched, you know, or at least he didn't used to. So Will definitely is is careful about that. That's important. And then what felt to me like a little bit of a Heroes of Olympus callback, Chiron comes running in and goes, oh, oh, no, have I interrupted something? (laughs) It was giving Frank Zhang in the stables to me and or Annabeth's brother when Annabeth and Percy were in the Athena cabin. In Battle of the Labyrinth. Looking at maps. Chiron is so uncomfortable here. To which I say, Chiron, why do you barge in? Yeah, like knock. Literally Knock. knock. Literally kick the door with your hooves. <laughs> to be fair, we do see in a minute that he's in a, a bit of a hurry. He has arms. He's he can... <laughs> got lots of night with him. Blowing smoke out of his ears or something. He's in a hurry because Rachel Elizabeth Dare is going to blow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I picture it like she's about to sneeze and she's like really trying to hold it in. <laughs> and then out comes the green smoke, which is important because, of course, we just read five entire books that were all about getting Rachel Elizabeth Dare's green smoke to come back so and here we are and here we are you may also remember that the tower of nero ended with 
us being told that Rachel delivered the prophecy, but the book did not actually include the prophecy, which is kind of a first for Rick. He normally does not like to do things that way. You might remember that the prophecy of the seven actually appears in The Last Olympian, um, and it's Rachel's first prophecy. Here, he, I guess, really wanted to give himself some leeway or um, hadn't settled on what the plot was going to be. I think it's a fun device for us to both give him, give him some time. He can take a breath. He can um, <laughs> take a beat between series for once. But also, yeah. we part of the device is that we find out after Rachel delivers the prophecy that this is a recurring thing for her. This is a literalization of the repression that we're talking about and thinking about in this book. Should we read the prophecy? Yeah, wait, Maddie, were you going to add something there before we read oh, it? Yeah. I was just going to say, I had a thought on the whole withholding the prophecy in Tower of Nero thing, which is that he may not have found Mark yet. And so he might have been like, I don't know if I can do this because he was like, we yes. definitely need a, a co-author for the sun and the star, but I haven't found one yet. So I don't want to like give this prophecy and get everyone really excited, but it may not be a thing. Yeah, that felt like it yeah. to me as well. Yeah. Newbie question. Yeah. Is is this a standalone book or are there going to be more of these? It's a standalone it has, for now. It's been advertised as a standalone. So it, it resolves at the end. Yes, but, you know, Richard be lying. Um, <laughs> you never know. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> but, yeah, technically standalone. It definitely comes to a, a close at the end. He said the Tower of Nero was the last book in the Percy Jackson universe and then, like, a year later he's like okay so we're going to be writing about two more he's so mercurial <laughs> isn't he <laughs> <laughs> that's a great word um all right carter give us your red impression <clears throat> <laughs> go forth and find the one who calls out your name who suffers you can do so much better refusing- than that <laughs> oh i'm sorry i'm supposed to snake voice this right now <laughs> go forth and find the one who calls out your name <laughs> Who suffers and despairs for refusing to remain. There, leave something of equal value behind, or your body and soul no one will ever find. I was just thinking of the Lightning Thief musical, where they have the oracle be like, go west and face the god who has turned, and it's like the best moment of the show. There's a musical? Yeah. Yes. Isn't there ever a musical? It's so fun. For a week. Say we bring an episode on the musical in the car tomorrow on the way to lacrosse, okay? Okay. Okay. I'll be back in Melbourne by then, and I'm, of course, taking her to lacrosse on Sunday. A a father's work is never done. (laughs) Wow, what do we think of this prophecy? Does anybody have thoughts about it? It's quite short. Mm, That's a good point. As someone who hasn't finished the book, I'm a bit worried about this giving something of equal value because his boyfriend comes with him. It's okay. Yeah. I feel like I'm being set up here for tragedy. I mean, don't spoil it for me. Uh, well, don't. But I'm just. We won't. <laughs> this episode is not spoiling beyond um, the end of chapter seven, chapter eight. eight, seven, seven, eight, depending how far we get. Yeah. Um, okay. That worries. You know, who, you know who else is worried? Um, Kyron and and William. Kyron's um, worried. And Mr. D. Mr. D is really how is again? You don't have to go down this rabbit hole if you don't want to, but. How is Dionysus trapped? He seems to be trapped in the camp that he's not allowed to leave. Is that am I reading it correctly? It's a punishment that, like, honestly, we don't we don't know all that much about. And I have a fierce, fierce feeling that we're going to get 
a Mr. D standalone novel in the next so good. four years. Yeah. Wow. Because there's a lot of untouched backstory there. Because he seems pretty cool. <laughs> he, I He's gotten I was, a lot cooler. Yeah. Um, oh. Over the course of the, the books. I was going to ask if you guys felt that like reading these couple chapters here, or really this chapter where we have this like dialectic between Chiron and Mr. D and Will and Nico trying to decide what we're going to do. I really, I don't know how much I was projecting it and how much it really is present in the text, the influence that the actors that were cast in the Disney plus show as these roles has had <laughs> on the way that I am reading or the way that they have been written like on the page, because I was just hearing like Jason Manzoukas's sense of humor baked into the Mr. D lines where it was like more wacky and less like violently mean, you know, like not as condescending and more like silly goofy. Yeah. Um, and is that hiring it on top or is that Rick Riordan's actually seen the casting and changing how he's writing? Well, he was working on the book at the time that they were like, he was in Vancouver and they were sending versions back and forth like Mark and Rick. So I don't know. Yeah. I reckon it came across more to me as Mr. D actually starting to care about some of the campers. Because in the beginning, he's just like, I cannot even be bothered to remember any of your names. This <laughs> is Annie, Beth, and Peter Johnson. And, yeah. and like, he actually does care about Nico and kind of Will by extension. And like, that's kind of how we all feel about Will. We care a lot about Nico and then we care about Will because he's dating Nico. And, and, and that's, that's, uh, you, you listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, think that's right, that there's an yeah. in-universe explanation for what's going on. Mr. D also does point out that the rhyme scheme is uh, lazy, which I really appreciated. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a little reading yourself, a self-read there. Yeah, I've got that on a lot of Rick and Mark calling themselves out. Yeah, that was cute. They were like, we did our best, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, that what you said about Mr. D being genuinely worried, he literally says, this is page 41 in the US version. Nico and I have been talking about some things he's been experiencing, dreams, waking visions, a voice calling out to him from Tartarus. Now I learn there is a repeating prophecy? I haven't even heard it yet, and I'm already skeptical. I don't want to see him get hurt, Chiron. Nico felt an unexpected surge of gratitude. He'd never heard Mr. D come so close to admitting that he cared about another person. Does that mean I can share your popcorn? Nico ventured. Absolutely not. <laughs> we didn't mention this, but Mr. D walks in with a giant bucket of popcorn because he says that he uh, is viewing the situation as entertainment. So there is still, to your point, this line that we're walking that is a little less straight up mean, but still does involve a presentation, at least, of detachment and mm -hmm. of, uh, you know ironic, power-based, humor-based remove um, mm -hmm. where all those things are all tangled up. Am I yeah. reading this correctly that in in these books, the gods are fundamentally not human? Yeah. They're, yeah. Very, they're very other. They're very different from us. And yeah. they're, they're some, because when, in, in hearing you guys talk about this, they're just the worst. They're so <laughs> harsh and so horrible. But as I started to realize that they're not human, it, it sort of, it doesn't excuse it, but it sort of explains it. But they They're like manifestations of us and like our culture. So they suck. <laughs> I'm just saying like, well, if you didn't want us to be such horrible people, that's on you for being horrible people. Yeah. Oh. It's a fun circle, circu cir 
cyclical cyclical relationship where the gods need the humans to exist um uh, symbiotic also, relationship it's a symbiotic relationship there uh -huh. you go i once took biology <laughs> honors <laughs> wait did i it was i think i did it was hard um <laughs> I, carter is the science person you all know this um <laughs> this yeah i guess it's important that this was the something I had just started talking about at the end of the last episode, the whole cyclical thing and the nature of regeneration in this book and how that relates to PTSD, which itself is the framing device for the story. Um, and so this prophecy, like not only did we did not only did it come out at the end of Tower of Nero, even though we didn't hear it and it's coming out now, Rachel has been spewing it like constantly. Um, mm hmm. So just another form, in addition to Nico's nightmares that are being like, Nico, you need to listen. Nico, you really got to revisit this. Like, um, similar to if you, um, you know, struggle with PTSD and things keep coming back until you until you take the time to pay attention to them in the way that they need, it, need to be paid attention to. But of course, we're worried because we know that we have to go to Tartarus in order to do this. Um, it could very easily be a trap. Oh, it was even, it's even been um, specifically 12 times, which is also important because I don't know what book it is, but Chiron is like, yes, 12 is an important number, 12 Olympians, 12 months, um, et cetera, et cetera. So 12, like, okay, we really need to listen now that it's been 12 times. Um, and I really enjoyed this conversation because you get to see Nico really think this through. Like you, he you hear all of the beats in his thought process, like, Yes, I am scared. Yes, I'm worried that Will might be the person, you know, the thing that is going to get left behind. Yes, it's possible, like, Bob is um, back to being Yapetus. Like, we don't know. Um, hence, this could be a trap. Um, but ultimately, like, I owe this to him. Because as much as I'm being, I'm suffering from these nightmares, and as much as I will suffer going to Tartarus, Bob is suffering more. Can I add something here? Yeah. When I found out that it was about Bob, I was really excited. Yeah. Have, again, I only know about Bob from listening to the podcast, but this whole thing of Bob had his personality reset. Yes. By some shenanigans that I didn't fully understand. Um, and this, and we, Maddie and I had this big, deep philosophical discussion about this of if you totally wipe someone's personality and start again from scratch, mm -hmm. is that the same as murder? Like, Mm -hmm. The thing that was is now entirely gone, even if the physical body still exists. It's a ship of thesis. It's not entirely <laughs> gone. Because remember, in the House of Hades, Bob has that whole thing where he sees Hyperion and it kind of reminds him. So it's clearly not entirely gone. It's just suppressed, which oh. kind of indicates that the River Lethe has a kind of lesser effect on immortals because it will mm. completely wipe the memory of mortals. But Bob's a titan, so... Okay. Well, I'm pretty pleased that we're going to see, and I'm, I'm keen to see what happens beyond Chapter 8 because I want to see what happens to Bob and does he in some way retain memories or existence of... So yeah. we'll have to wait and see on that one. And I, so true what you're saying about, like, it, it, the idea of his identity is very interesting. Um, and I was like, is Bob, can we think about Bob as a metaphor? Like, like the inclusion of Bob specifically in this story, obviously Nico has a relationship with Bob, so he should be here, but he's somebody who himself 
is somebody who has changed, who has let go of a lot of trauma, um, who has like chosen mm. to become a better person. Like this is a, a journey that Nico is going on himself. Um, that in makes the story. Um, oh yeah, I'm gonna read this on his like resolve, like hero. Like this is if we were writing a musical of this book, this would be where the I want song comes in. <laughs> um, look. The point is that every memory, every thought and emotion in my head is screaming at me to listen. And Bob is the one who's calling out. It could be a trap, but I don't think so. Bob is suffering down there. He needs my help. And Rachel's prophecy is getting stuck on repeat. I think that means the situation is getting worse. Bob is running out of time. I have to try and help him. Okay. Why is it Nico's job? Nico, 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 Mr. Noble McSacrifice. I get that Percy and Annabeth have been doing tons of stuff, but so has Nico. He also went to Tartarus. He has been equally as helpful in the past three series, if not more helpful in the Trials of Apollo. And yet he's the one who has to go back down to Tartarus. Why is it his job? This Quote, is right. but I've been there. Did you all forget I'm one of only three demigods who's ever come back from that wretched place alive? And I survived there the longest. If anyone can help Bob, it's me. It's not, it's not, not everything is his responsibility. Yeah. I think that Nico as a character exists to stake out a, a place in this precise dialectic and discussion about how you deal with obligations and move through the world as someone who has certain abilities and certain marginalizations and like a sense of responsibility. Uh, I feel like, yeah, Nico is somebody who might intellectually understand this argument mm -hmm. and does interface with it a little bit. And I think we're going to come back to this in the conversation that Nico and Will have with Percy and Annabeth later on oh, in oh, this section. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we'll be talking about that in this episode. But um, I just really feel like Nico would hear you say that and be like, I, I theoretically understand that. But um, I think that because I can, like, exactly as he says, because I can do this and because somebody should do this. Yeah. I, no. I have to do this. And that's yeah. oh, sorry, go on. very weighty. <laughs> I question it just and take this take this with a grain of salt because it's from someone who's only read eight chapters of the entire Reordenverse. But it it feels like Nico is someone who doesn't feel like he deserves to be happy. Yes. And that is exactly the person who's gonna go on this quest. This has been his whole thing, because dad, just just a bit of Nico backstory for you, Dad. I'll be very quick about this. Yes. <laughs> first his and he doesn't actually remember this, but first his mother dies. Then he gets brought to Camp Half-Blood by Percy. Then his sister leaves him to join the Hunters of Artemis. Then his sister subsequently gets killed in a quest in the third Percy Jackson book. Oh. Then everything kind of just goes wrong. Then he Is has this a kid in the hotel who gets put in the time hotel? Him. That was in between, yeah. <laughs> and so then it all kind of just goes from bad to worse. He ends up down in Tartarus. He gets captured by the by the giants. And then he's in the bronze jar with the pomegranate seeds. And it's all just really, really, really awful. Yeah. But then he meets Will and it's kind of okay, but he's still obviously really traumatised. I think this is his journey. This is his, he has to learn to be someone who can, can thinks he deserves to be happy. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in, in that vein, it's, it's learning to be happy and learning to rely on other people. Um, we're going to talk more about that when we, when yeah. we visit Persebeth. Um, I have a whole, 
I wrote like a paragraph in my book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think we have to shout out the broom of equal value line really quickly before we get out of this chapter because I laughed out loud because everybody like, you know, if you're not super online in the PJO fandom, like people were so freaked out before the book even came out. Like as soon as we knew they were going to Tartarus, which is pretty much the end of Tower of Nero, everyone was like, oh, Will's gonna die. <laughs> like, like what? Like easy. That's the easy answer. It's Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, it's it's kill your gaze. It's um, Nico's gonna suffer more. Like, and so this line when they're trying to figure out what equal value could be, um, Nico says, oh. or maybe the equal value thing isn't a life for a life. It's a maybe bird. Bob wants to bring something back with him, like his broom or something, and he yeah. needs a broom of equal <laughs> value. So funny. And on the bury your gaze trope, is it, is it just me or has it occurred to anyone else that Rick Ryden and Marco Shiro have literally sent their most prominent gay characters to hell? <laughs> somebody, somebody tweeted about, like, isn't it funny that the premise of the sun and the star is those two twinks go to hell? And then somebody retweeted that and tagged us and said, this is so Carter core. <laughs> Killing the guys isn't good enough. We have to go a step further and send them to hell. <laughs> literally send them to hell. It's funny. It literally, like, I think it's objectively funny. Yeah. I think Mark would think it's funny too. <laughs> it's not meant that way, but like. But it's a commentary on it. Like, they're going to go to hell and like, they're going to learn some things. Like, yeah. hopefully make it out the other side. Um yeah. Of course, we're questioning here. I mean, Will is automatically like, I'm going to go with you. We're questioning, what does it mean to be a child of Apollo in Tartarus. Um, ultimately, though, again, the I want moment, I can't let this keep happening. Someone is begging for me to help, and I can't just sit here and ignore it. Very. And we do have this exchange here. It seems from Nico's perspective, like as he thinks through these things, there's not that much plausible doubt in his mind that he's going to go. The one question that he seems to actually fixate on is whether or not he can convince Will to not go. Yeah, yes. And they have this exchange. (laughs) I think Will's response is really interesting. Will says, quote, this isn't some hero play I'm trying to make. I promise you right here and now, Nico, I'm not going to trade myself for Bob. And you're not going to have to make that choice. He knows Nico so well. It's so good. Yes, he really does keep like reading Nico's mind throughout the whole book. So and Nico good. puts up zero resistance here. Nico, I don't think Nico wants him to come, yeah. and yeah. he just needs it to not be him asking him to come. It's a symbolic resistance. Ooh. I'm not going to ask you. Just and then Will's like, "I'm coming," and Nico's like, "Oh well, what can you do?" Yeah, literally, he says, I thought about that, but Percy and Annabeth went through Tartarus, just the two of them. If my stubborn boyfriend insists on going, I do. Then Will and I can do the same. The fact that just as good a team. Line. The fact that I do is on a separate line. They're getting married. That that's hinting at. <gasps> oh my god, that's such a good close read. <laughs> this is also, I think, one of the first times we see. We you know we've talked about this. Mark drew this parallel very explicitly, where they said, "I want this book to, on some level." convince readers that this is a pair of equal value societal import um depth uh importance 
as Persebath, and that's an analogy that you, listener, should be drawing. I think it's so fascinating that Nico is also doing this and kind of continues to do so throughout where he is drawing stronger and more direct one-to-one comparisons between the journey that they're going on and Percy and Annabeth's journey and saying that is a tradition in which I am like seeing myself and seeing this relationship I think is fun. It's so fun within like the fan, like the canon, you know, and the fandom and the culture of these books. And it's also fun inside the world of the books. Like obviously if you were a camper growing up at Camp Half-Blood and you knew Percy and Annabeth, they were a couple years older than you, you would compare every relationship you ever had to Percy and Annabeth. You'd <laughs> and be like, oh. World. It's the absolute gold standard of relationships. Like well, anyone, anyone in the world of Percy Jackson who's in a relationship when something goes wrong, they're like, okay, WWPD, what would Percybeth do? literally that like how would they communicate like they could do it we can do it too um they're gonna start couples counseling Percy and Annabeth are gonna start a business that's just couples counseling (laughs) that's kind of yeah that's what they're doing hustling on the side something Um, else that happened at this point was that when they're saying to Chiron can this be a quest is this a, a thing and he starts raising all these objections of oh you've there's got to be three of you and and Nico just shoots it down just totally, you know, he just says, no, look, there's two of us, but it's, there's precedence on this. And Karen's like, yep, okay, off you go. And he just puts up zero. Like when he's like, hmm, I've never seen anything like this before and that's his only contribution. He's just like, I've got no idea what's going on. You two figure it out. Be so for real, Kyron. Be so for real. What <laughs> Your millennium of training has led you to this. Um, there is one thing in this at the end of this chapter that I really was like, my spidey senses are tingling. And, you know, cue me being delusional. Cue that, like, I connected the dots. You didn't connect shit meme. Um, (laughs) Pardon my French. Um, But (laughs) at the bottom of 48, um, Rachel's like, you know, I really hope this works, this quest, for your sake, of course, but also because I'm supposed to leave for Paris next week. And I'd love to be able to make it there without prophecy smoke billowing out of me on the plane ride over. And I was just like, hear me out. Rachel Elizabeth Dare in Paris (laughs) story. That would be so good. That comes across as a little bit bratty of Rachel to be like, you guys are going down to Tartarus to save Bob, but I just really don't want to be inconvenienced on my probably first class flight to Paris. So if if you guys could just sort that out before next week, that would be great. It's like, so Rachel. Like, I have to go to it's so terrible for me. I have to go to a private, expensive boarding school that's probably not even that awful. It's so King Princess. Yeah, it, it's really. <laughs> we know Rachel. We know her. We been know her. Um, okay. With that, the quest is happening. We flip the page at the end of this chapter, and we get another canoe page with this framing device so um, if you're listening to the audiobook you wouldn't realize this and actually i wonder how they're how they'd be separating i haven't listened to the audiobook yet but the book opens up with this image of a canoe and then like a short page before it goes into the first chapter and now we have the second one of these instances where we've got the image of the canoe and the short exchange between three characters will nico and um gorgyra and we don't even know who she is yet um the first one was about, you could tell that they're probably somewhere, likely Tartarus, Will is injured. They're trying to pass. And Gorgyra tells them to tell her a story about the two of them. 
And this um, scene picks up directly from that. Do you want to read it, Carter? The whole thing? (laughs) I don't know. The two of us, Nico turned to Will, who still wore a haunted look on his face. What do you want to know about us? Anything, Gorgyra said. Tell me a story in exchange for a boat. That's all I will ask of you. There are so many stories we could tell, said Nico. How do I narrow it down to just one? The nymph smiled. Would you tell me how you for, to, oh, would you tell me how you two first came into each other's lives? And if we do that, said Will sluggishly, you'll help us? She nodded. If it is satisfactory to me, yes. Nico gazed at Will and shrugged. Then he took a deep breath and began. I could overanalyze that to death. Um. This made no <laughs> sense in the audiobook. Okay, good to know. Because <laughs> I, I thought I'd missed a bit or something. Yeah. There should be like a sound effect of like crashing waves, yeah, you know? Yeah. Leading in and out of these sections. And it's like yeah. playing in the background. The sound of rushing it's water. K-pop the musical sound design. Um. <laughs> <gasps> yes, Carter. That is a reference for literally nobody. Oh, except for <laughs> Hannah. You know who you are, Hannah. Um I could, yeah, I could, I could go into heavy detail about how important it is that we stop banning books in libraries and schools because hearing stories makes people empathetic um, to other people's plights. Anyway, we flip the page. We make it to chapter six. And we're preparing to go to the underworld. This is like the preparation chapter, which is fun because we usually really skip over this part of a quest. They just get like a backpack with some drachmas and some ambrosia. But here we have yes. Nico and Will really arguing. Will isn't over. Yeah. That is yeah, how it characterizes this chapter. There are some logistics, but primarily what we are seeing is Will be really committed, but also struggling with the idea of going to the underworld and having that struggle manifest itself in over-preparation, in kind of offhand remarks that Nico has to pause at and be like, what is that? I don't know. Like, I'm, I don't want to use the term microaggression because that's not really what's going on here, but a little, it's a, like a little bit what's going on here. Like he'll say something say about the, the article and he will take it personally. Um, and like kind I of, he should take it personally. Him. Also yeah. that. <laughs> because, because what? Because Nico is having this like complicated feeling of obviously he doesn't want to be going to Tartarus, but he's kind of weirdly excited to be going to his other home. Meet the parents. Will He's is kind of bringing Will home, exactly. It is literally hometown dates on that The Bachelor. <clears throat> hometown week. Nico has, a, even though he you know, has a complicated relationship with home, he still has a fondness for the place. He wanted to get going. Like, he wants to get down there, you know? Because he mm-hmm. loves it down there. And it's a huge part of him. He wants to show that part of him. To, it literally is a hometown date. <laughs> just like, how many hoodies do I need? Chiron, should I bring socks? Kyron's like, I, I don't wear socks, but I can still appreciate a good sock. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, um, there's a there's, mention of our friends in the underworld helping us. Who there's a mention of our friends in the underworld helping us. I was like, is that Damasen? That was my first thought. There is um, a fun exchange that is also indicative of the broader conflict that is bubbling up very lightly at this point about their transportation to New York. Yes. Because you might remember from literally just one episode ago that Nico kind of loves the Grey Sisters. Understandably. And Will says um wait. Bottom of 55. (laughs) No, I'm going to read Will's thing at the top of 56. 
Okay. Uh, Wilson. Okay, so Nico talks about the Grey Sisters. He talks about Jules Abair, who you may or may not remember. Jules Abair Jules is Abair! Nico's zombie chauffeur, oh, who was a gift from his father Hades, because Nico awesome. needed to drive and also needed a friend um, and a chaperone. <laughs> I'm crying. It's so good, Dad. What happens here is Hades kind of gets the he just kind of gets the idea that mortal parents drive their kids around a lot, and being a god, Hades can't do that. So he thinks about how to solve this, and then and then decides to give Nico this old car with the soul of a race car driver from the 1800s. Named Jules Abel. Okay. <laughs> this, and this is the zombie race. This is the zombie chauffeur. Yeah. This yeah. is the zo- zombie chauffeur, yes. We've met Jules Abel before, and we love him. Yeah. <laughs> but Will says, no zombie chauffeurs either. Please grant me just a bit of normal, boring human travel before the underworld. What? Normal, that a, boring. That what made does a lot that of mean? sense to me. He wants a sense I, of normalcy before they go to a place that is going to be very topsy turvy for him. I think this is, but I, I really feel like that is such a rich line where you understand the beginnings of the conflict that is bubbling yes. up because you because could under, like normal? the word normal is so charged and weighted, especially. For Nico to hear the word normal from his, you know, like, blonde, conventionally happy boyfriend. <laughs> like, it, it's... What, what he's hearing is like, oh, like, the things that you like are weird. Which is something that he's been thinking about a lot and obviously is an area of... It, it would be a sore spot for him. And a sore spot that really stacks perfectly against all of the things that we're going to see at a much deeper, more severe level throughout the rest of the book. Um, But also you can 100% understand where Will is coming from because, like, literally, yes, he's going to do something that is really difficult for him and really out of his comfort zone and he wants to have a little bit less of that. um, Yeah, literally. I felt like like these are two real people who are having a very real and understandable conflict and the, the the time that is taken for them to like really like have these conversations and sit in that uncomfortability, 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 discomfort, discomfort is something <laughs> that isn't at, at, like it's really a change of pace for these books. Um, Rick mentioned that at the book tour that that since that idea of really sitting in your emotions and really taking the time to work things out is something that Mark gifted to Rick in the process of writing this. Yeah, and it's so important in, like, works of fiction for this kind of thing to be portrayed realistically. And I won't go off on a tangent about this because I've been known to go off on tangents about things that I love in the past. But have I <laughs> heard of the show The Dragon Prince? I've heard of it. Yeah. Oh, so, um, spoilers ahead for The Dragon Prince. So, I don't right. know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, basically, at the end of the third season, there's a two-year time skip between season three and four. And so there are two characters who were dating at the end of season three. And in a graphic novel between the seasons... One of them discovers that the main villain is still alive and so she runs away in the middle of the night on her own to go and find him and disappears for two years and, like, they were, like, really in love with each other and she runs away on the night of his birthday and so he wakes up on his 15th birthday with this letter from him that's the most heartbreaking thing I've read in my life. And <gasps> so and she comes back in season four and she she comes back in, into the castle where he's from and she's, like, hi and he's just so confused and they spend the entire season with this dynamic that, Upon first watching it, you're like, 
this is so awful. I hate this so much. Why can't it just be like it was? But the more you watch it and get used to it, the more you're like, oh my God, this is so realistic because she really, really hurt him so much. And she broke his heart and it was all terrible for him. He doesn't like his birthday anymore because to him, it's just the anniversary of the day she left. And so and you she, feel this is, it's important to portray this stuff realistically. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a parallel between Nico and Will and their kind of the realisticness of this relationship and that it's not perfect. It doesn't all flow smoothly. And in the Dragon Prince, Rayla and Callum's relationship, it's far from perfect. And you can be like meant to be with someone and you can have a good relationship with them and love them without, when you, but you can still fight and it can still go really wrong. But if you do love them, then you'll fix it and it'll get sorted out. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that comparison. Thank you for bringing that in. I'm sure many, I'm sure many of our listeners also watch that show. Let us know. Um, should, should I mean? It, we, I think we can skip over a lot of the travel stuff um, as they make their way to Penn Station through the cab to the LIRR to it's Penn cute, Station. It's the Long Island Railroad. Is the it? actual train, but also the scene. Um. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the scene is cute. Um, Nico is really, like, nervous, or Will is really nervous. He pulls out the sun lamp. We find out that Will is bringing a battery-powered sun lamp to Tartarus, which is very <laughs> smart. Um, I, too, have a, have a sun lamp. Um, it plugs into the wall, though, so it wouldn't be as helpful. Um, <laughs> I felt is seen. Come up later? Is the sun lamp one of those things that turns out to be incredibly... Don't spoil it for me, but I had a feeling that this was going to be one of those things that... He's a throwaway thing, but it turns out to be really, really useful later on. Ooh, I won't say anything. <laughs> um, as, There's as, a little, I think this is the first time we get a hint of backstory for Will. Um, yes, exactly. About his early experiences in Manhattan, his mother, his broad sense of childhood, how he came to camp for the first time. There is a moment where he starts to tell the story of a monster attack in Midtown and then stops. Oh, my God. Wow, Will, Will, do you also have a past? And Will, um, do you have a little traumatic backstory? Do you want to tell us about it, Will? Do you want to deepen not. your character? He does not. <laughs> he just he kind of shuts up and he's like, but I'll tell you about that another time, Nico, and we just kind of move on until later. Yeah, literally, we're on the train. You could talk about it now, but they don't. They don't. We move on. Talking about, also talking about little subtle tension bubbling up between the two of them, there's a throwaway line about Will loving golden Oreos. And Nico says, oh, please, that's obvious. They're basically Apollo's version of the Oreo. Anyway, ha, ha, ha. Will says, and the morally superior choice. And Nico says, we'll come back to that. And I, I, again, I know it's a joke, but like, Will's... But also. <laughs> but also, like, the morally superior choice being the lighter you know, golden one and that yeah. we can ascribe more morality to our personality differences. Hmm. Yeah. We will come back to that as Nico says. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh yeah. They have, they have subway trauma. Um, <laughs> uh, that's where we find out about the will backstory. Um, can I ask for some context? Yeah. The, the relationship, the Will character, is, is that well established from the previous books or is is this quite new, this relationship with, with um, Nico and Will? The, the relationship, relationship has existed in some form for six books now. We have seen it depicted in three of them to an, 
a non-negligible amount, but they are side characters in two of those books. So we get one book where we would say maybe 20% of it is setting up the relationship. And then in the other books, they're like very ancillary characters. And we see the relationship at in kind of like a fun honeymoon stage in the background um, for a couple other books. But the context is that we see them like talking as like friends at the very end of Heroes of Olympus. And then when we open Trials of Apollo, they're dating. So we don't know the story. Uh We don't know the story of them getting together, which is why we are getting the story slowly through these framing device scenes. Just Um, as all exposition of the nymph has is yes is asking all these questions. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, I get curious at these little these little the canoe bits. Because I'd, I'd read it and then I'd turn the page and we were back to the normal story right when we were about to get somewhere. And then I'm, I would just be like, oh, my God, this is so annoying. <laughs> so confusing in the audiobook. It just kept on. <laughs> I kept thinking my phone had stuffed up and it was, it was jumping forwards and stuff. It was really confusing. Although I did like the way that th- they had different perceptions of how their relationship had started. Like when, when they were talking to the nymph, it was yes. it was like like there would be hang on no I first saw you here oh I didn't realize <laughs> you came here and and that I thought that was really nice very that, realistic was different perceptions of of how things begin yeah there's a very another very beautiful moment of um, reflection on the train ride um, when Will mentions his mom Nico thinks about his mom and oof we really don't get a lot of Nico thinking about his mom in these books so this is pretty new um, and Nico is says do you ever think about what life would be like if you weren't a demigod? And Will is like, what? Why would you say that? And Will's basically like, no, I don't ever think about that because even though there's a lot of suffering, like I've, I have, I have like a meaning in my life, you know, and I have wonderful experiences and I have like a family basically. And as Will falls asleep, Nico starts to think about that. Like the light aspects, but also quote the darker aspects, loneliness, pain, isolation, um, he wasn't sure that he wanted, you know, to see things as full of light and promise. So just like you were saying, Tom, like he has to decide and choose to yeah. go for that happiness. Yeah, and I love this section so much because finally someone acknowledges that being a demigod could actually be a good thing because we spend the entire first series going, no, being a I didn't want to be a half-blood. I didn't want to be a half-blood. You shouldn't want this. And then meanwhile, every single person who's ever read it is kind of just like, yeah, but I do. I do want to be a demigod. Because of this sense of community and family that you would get at Camp Half-Blood where everyone supports each other, everyone understands you. And so it's not that everyone's thinking, I want to fight monsters and almost get killed. The fighting monsters bit may be sure, but the getting killed part, probably not. But now Will actually <laughs> explains this here. And I feel like this might have been Mark's influence with, with Rick trying to continue his whole, you don't want to be a Half-Blood, trust me. And Mark going, no, no, wait, yes, we do. We do want to be <laughs> It's <laughs> like, oh, okay then. Yeah. And so finally Will acknowledges that this is a good thing. Yeah. That's such a good point. And Nico yeah. thinking about that like chasm between him and Will and like the darkness that makes him him and wondering yeah. if like Will doesn't like that and will ever be able to accept that. Who does he yeah. think of? Again, here in this moment, Percy and Annabeth. Yeah. He yeah. says, Did how did other couples do this? Did Percy and Annabeth ever doubt each other? And it becomes clear to him what we must do before we embark um, down to the underworld. We need to go to Sally Jackson's very specifically named location. Yeah, we have a street corner now. (laughs) 104th and 1st. 
Do we know that already? I No, we have never gotten that specific an address because in the Trials of Apollo, they pop up, um, Lou and Apollo pop, we got and a subway stop, pop right? up uh, on like Lexington. Yeah, underneath the grate, but then we don't find out where their address is. I feel like this is kind of intentional because people would probably just go to that apartment all the time and whoever actually lives there would constantly <laughs> be having to deal with Percy Jackson fans and it would be like the Empire State Building. <laughs> But now, you know, we've previously speculated and questioned how Sally Jackson could afford an apartment on the Upper East Side. Because this makes that a little a more very, sense. This makes a little more sense. Yeah. 104th <laughs> and 1st, I think, is a, a very sensical location for this apartment to be. Yeah. Um, and they're, ta- they're blah, 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 subway. Um, Nico takes them on a shortcut. Um, and they they talk to Sally Jackson. Will so, says, what are we doing here? Recruiting Percy? I thought he was out in California. Nico scowled, not recruiting him. Dream of no. <laughs> I want to dream of that. He more than deserves time off. And the fact that Sally is like concerned about the prospect of them recruiting Percy as well. Like they get to the house, like they get to her house and Sally's like, oh, why are you guys here? And then they're like, we want to talk to Percy and Annabeth. And she's just like, you're, you're not trying to recruit me, you. Um, just like no 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 we just want to talk we promise sally is so delightful she walks such a fun line here of both being unfailingly warm to nico and also setting her boundaries and also saying to nico oh i know you're not going to listen to me but when i say this i also mean it for you you also shouldn't do this yeah but probably you're going to do it anyway (laughs) <laughs> all while making blue cookies because quote i could make cookies in any other color but it's mostly habit at this point but why are they sugar cookies it's meant to be chocolate chip i've got that underline with chocolate chip written underneath because if she doesn't make blue sugar cookies she makes chocolate chip cookies and it irritates experimenting maybe but, estelle like sugar cookies if it ain't broke don't fix it <laughs> <laughs> so but, true who could argue with that um this line on page 68 where she's, she's where Percy is, not Percy, where Nico's like, okay, so where are they? Can we call them? And Sally's like, I imagine they're both at Percy's dorm, hopefully studying for their English exam. <laughs> it's so cute. She's like, yeah, the fact that she has their whole schedule memorized. Yeah. Um, again, she's got that like protective mom while also yeah. being yeah. the cool fun mom at the like, same time. For the English exam. But to be fair, they could just as easily be doing just about anything else. Mm -hmm. And um, let's see. Oh, this was the line that took me all the way out. Um, For us, this is also page 68. Um, They ended up in Percy's old bedroom, which again, Nico found very strange. He remembered years ago coming in through that fire escape window and to his surprise being offered some of Percy's birthday cake. It had been one of the first glimmers Nico had ever felt of true friendship. Oh my God. It's so oh, cute. I remember that too. I was there. I was also <laughs> on that fire escape. Oh. Being like, oh my God, is that birthday cake? <laughs> For those oh of you listeners God. who might not remember this moment, this is the actual end of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Like yeah. the last thing that we get is Percy inviting Nico into his surprise birthday party, his 15th birthday that Poseidon shows up to with the blue cake. Brace yourself. Paul Blowfish. Yourself. <laughs> Paul Blowfish. This is, Tyson. Yeah, this is where Nico is starting to pitch Percy on um, bathing in the Ooh. sticks. But it's, yeah. wow. 
Yeah, I, I really felt this. That was such an emotionally resonant moment. This is why when whenever people talk about the retconning, when people say these things about Nico and Percy, I feel like it's all the way there. You could open most pages in the Battle of the Labyrinth and understand what this relationship is. But the one thing, if you were to, like, if I were to show you one thing and be like, this is undeniable, this is gold standard 100% evidence. It is that last scene when you see the two of them interacting and that is a recognizable dynamic. That is two people who I understand how they how they view each other, you know? Yeah, Nico has <laughs> such a violent crush on Percy yeah, when he the, shows it, up on his fire escape. More apparent. It, only, it only becomes more apparent in The Last Olympian yeah. than in the Mark of Athena or House of Hades or something. And Nico just walking there and thinking about this and going, very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. too. Very strange to think about that time back in the day when I was down bad. Um, It's kind of, it's kind of like, oh, actually it's not entirely the same dynamic, but in Avatar, do you remember that episode Ember Island players where they're seeing that play about themselves and Suki's there and they have that scene with Sokka and Yue in the play. And then Suki just turns to Sokka and he's like, I didn't know you made out with the moon spirit. And so it's just like. That's rough, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, that's a great reference. I'm wearing an avatar shirt. I just finished watching it for the first time last night, actually. Oh my God. Wow. Were you satisfied with the ending? Look, I'm not sure if I'll get kicked off for this, but I personally prefer Zutara over Katang because Aang is a 12 year old. Then I cannot oh. get past that. Real, real. We're not. Oh, no. We're not we, here we, advocating we for Shakara and Ang's relationship. No, um. <laughs> no, we do not. And I was just so annoyed because I was like, I was really happy with the ending, and I was sitting there, and I was like, oh, this is so cute. And they and they go outside, and I knew that they kissed at the end, but I was expecting there to be some kind of dialogue between the two because my main issue with it, and again, I won't go off on a long tangent about this because I am prone to that, is that every single time Ang kisses Katara, it's always Ang kissing Katara against not necessarily against her will but she never actually agrees to it and the first time he's just like i might die so i'm gonna kiss you and she just stands there really shocked and the second time she's like i don't know what i'm gonna do i'm really confused and then he's just like well i'm gonna kiss you anyways and then she's just like hang what the hell are you doing and now there's no discussion whatsoever we just end this entire series with them just i don't know deciding yeah it's fine Katang will never beat the big sister allegations. It's just, it won't work. Not for me. I, I apologize. Also forced, but Zutara, on the other hand. The only, have- yeah, I, I care about zero ships in Avatar The Last Airbender. I literally only care about ships within the legend of Korra. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> as soon as I can figure out how to watch it in Australia. Yeah, I can't, I, it's weird. It's hard. That's mm-hmm. a whole, yeah. whole crazy story. Um, yeah. Do you guys, I you know, we, we just, we're at over an hour now. Do you guys have like 10 minutes-ish? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we can finish this chapter. Um, so the way that we're going to call Percy and Annabeth from California, because they are not here, um, is using a setup that Percy made so that his mom could call him because, of course, demigods don't have cell phones. Um, and it's using like a humidifier and a lamp. Adorable. Um, I love this description. We throw the drachma in. Show me Percy Jackson at New Rome University. Seconds later, a familiar face took up most of the image of the iris message. Percy's green eyes looked like blotches of algae floating in the steam. 
<laughs> wow, that really set the mood for me. The yeah. ethereal, the ethereality of it, you know, and like Percy yeah. just like his intensity, you know, his eyes are just like yeah. popping out at them. Because I can't wait to see how they do Iris messages in the series. <gasps> yeah. I'm really interested to see what they do with that because it's never been entirely clear to me if the people within the message are rainbow coloured and or whether <laughs> it's kind of clear because sometimes it's like Luke appeared in the rainbow but now it's Percy's green eyes. So are Percy's green eyes just happening to be in the green part of the rainbow? <laughs> it's green now. These are important questions. Um, immediately they're like, <laughs> Percy's like, Mom, Nico, is everything okay? Um, and then Anna, uh, Percy says, oh, my God, Nico, oh, man, it's so good to see you. And then Annabeth's just like, what's going on? Do we need to come fight someone? And I just thought that the line was a false assumption because whenever anyone calls them, Annabeth's just like, oh, we've got to go fight someone now. Well, not this time. And she's so alert. You know that meme, Carter? It's like, like, don't say mother challenge. Like, don't say it. Yes. Like, me trying not to say mother for 10 minutes. That was me when Annabeth showed up on this page and said, do we need to come fight somebody? I was like, mother, mother. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true um <laughs> yeah wow we really we have to brace ourselves we have to control ourselves because we could really read this is like an eight-page conversation we're not going to because <laughs> i really really want restraint. to uh, we could but we won't um <laughs> there is a professionally recorded audiobook for that yes um important things to mention here they are in college their lives are good because we were wondering. That is important for us to know. They are adjusting. They're studying for things. Annabeth still They're teases learning. him. Life is good. Oh, so funny. I have never missed a day of classes in my life. It's the so Impausa throwback. Yeah. Wow. I was a little shaken by that. I, I was like, are we? Wow. Yeah. On and a Tuesday whole in front of my salad? Like, dang. Okay. But, yeah. but it's fine. We talked about it, we made a joke, and we kept going. And I was like, yeah, me too. Um. <laughs> we can make a joke. So with the, when Nick was like, we're going to Tartarus, and then Annabeth's like, maybe it's a quest for tartar sauce. <laughs> going on this whole tangent. And Percy's like, yeah, something low stakes and delicious. And Annabeth's like, goes great with fish and chips. And then Nick was like, come on. And then Annabeth just goes... And then Nick was like, be serious. And Annabeth just goes, so are we. You should definitely take up a tartar sauce quest. Maybe consider a nice lemon aioli. That would be exciting. <laughs> they so committed fun. to the bet. Yes. Mm. For those of you who are wondering if Annabeth knows how to improv, the answer is is yes. Yes, uh, Why would you have uh, doubted her abilities? You know, um, the answer is intelligence, yes, the, those skills transfer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the way that they literally, yeah, Percy and Annabeth are, they're deflecting with humor, but they are not about to have this conversation. Like, okay. truly, like, this is them using humor to mask the fact that they do not approve of this. They don't even want to think about entertaining the conversation of Nico. Yeah, and Sally has to there. leave the room. <laughs> or, I love how she has boundaries. We've talked about that before. She's an incredible mother. <laughs> um... Yeah, Will and I are going whether we discuss this or not, Nico says. <laughs> but I was hoping you two could give Will something in the way of advice so the journey isn't as hard on him. That is so, just like you were saying, Tom, like Nico, like 
he needs advice for himself too but he's just like being like well will needs help because like you know <laughs> he's gonna be in the underworld so like can you help will it's like you go also being like oh percy and adam my colleagues you know yeah. about this thing the three of us are in this like fun little club of like i don't know very elite people who have done this thing that no one else has been able to do um <laughs> Can you, like, tell Will Maybe you fill in my boyfriend, I guess. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Past characters in this book, some of them make me really upset, like, when that, like when they mention characters who have died. But any time Jason Grace's name is mentioned, it's underlined with either spy, unbelievable, or absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maddie. <laughs> underlined, and at first it says things like, absolutely not, this is ridiculous. And then as the book goes on, I kind of give up, and then the last time you mentioned it, it just says sigh underneath. <laughs> it, yeah, Jason is present, or, or rather not present, but his memory is present. You guys described like relationship really well a couple episodes ago. They're, they're co-workers <laughs> who know too much about each other. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand their like, personal ties and responsibilities. It's confusing. Um, but the real... Okay, there's two things that really stand out to me about this conversation once we actually start talking about Tartarus. Um, the first one is Percy and Annabeth, of course, it dawning on them that Bob is the one who's calling to Nico, that this quest is in large part due to the consequences of their uh, actions. So why is it Nico's job? Yeah. And of course, like, we don't have to blame Percy and Annabeth, like, so much because you know closing the doors of death it was a whole thing we were kind of in a bit of a situation there but <laughs> um a bit, a of, bit a situ of a situation that's the best way of describing it I've heard. <laughs> it's a bit of a little situation <laughs> i know this is going to sound terrible said annabeth but i wasn't even thinking of him gods how could i forget that is really the thing because it's not that they left him down there it's that the first time it's that they've been left him down there like yeah. he he been left. Um, this is the second time. <laughs> Annabeth forgot um, Percy at the bottom of this page. We shouldn't have left Bob down there. Percy said softly. I knew this would come back to haunt us one day. I suspect it would too, said Annabeth. But why you, Nico? <laughs> I mean, no offense, but wouldn't Bob reach out to me and Percy as well since we were the ones who saw him last? Nico didn't answer. So one theory lurked in a dark corner of his mind. Maybe because Bob thought I would help, but he wasn't sure about you two. That is a loaded remark. Oh my goodness. Literally read lie? them. No, he did not <laughs> lie. It's all facts. No printer. Literally, I was I was shook. Because I think it speaks to Nico's growth that he said that like in his own mind and not out loud. <laughs> yeah. Battle of the Labyrinth, Nico would have said that out loud and he would have been right. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think the difference, like in the Battle of Labyrinth, he would have said that but not believed it. And I think now he's not saying it, but he does know it. And that's Whoa. very important. <laughs> that's be cool. Oh my God. And I love that Nico can now see flaws within Percy because at the, at the yes. beginning, oh, it's yes. kind of like, Percy is so perfect. He's amazing. He's no flaw. But then in the Blood of Olympus, I think is when we first get Nico's perspective, we start kind of seeing this image of Percy slip and Nico notices these little things that Percy does that he finds immature or annoying and he's just like, okay, so Percy isn't this amazing idol that I've made him up to be. And then now we're really getting it here where on this really deep level, Nico's like, well, 
maybe Bob called to me because he thought that I would save him, but you guys wouldn't care enough. And it's, it's really deep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then we transition into the second part of this conversation. Also, I was going to ask, is this the first time that Persebeth has been written into one of these books? Yes. Like the ship name. It's so good. I wasn't sure if it had been mentioned oh my in the God. Olympus somewhere. No, it hasn't. I don't it's think so. Sure. That, wait, that didn't even it's register with me. It's page just like 72 in our breathing. Books. Wow. <laughs> okay. Pep talk. That's yeah, Persebeth pep talk. Not for a particular reason, but just because the phrase Persebeth pep talk, like, I don't know why, but that's just really important to me. I think that it's going to be something that is recurring for the rest yeah. of the books in the Reardon verse forever. Any standalone yeah. adventure, characters are going to have to get a Persebeth pep talk. Yeah, it's like, it's like step one, Chiron will start telling campers, okay, so what you need to do first is go and talk to Percy and Annabeth and get them to explain this to you because I think now now Percy's fought everything. Like we don't need to yeah. think the myths from Hercules. It's like, oh, you've got to defeat this monster. That's okay. Percy did it two weeks ago. And so we just kind of yeah. go and talk. Percy and yes, 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 yes. Um, also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that apparently in the audiobook it's pronounced Perkabeth. I will <gasps> say, I will say, um, no, no, is what I'll say. And we'll leave it at that. Respect to everyone involved in the audiobook, respect to Rick. The answer is no. But can I just say, now you guys know how know how all of us Thalia people feel when you guys pronounce it Thalia. I don't claim to know how to say anything. I don't claim to know the pronunciation of literally anything other than Persebeth. Persebeth. Okay. Everything else, I, I, I'm sure I don't know. And like the Persebeth pronunciation, that's a universal thing. Like everyone agrees with that. The Thalia versus Thalia thing is kind of a more... It's a colloquialism. Yeah. Um, okay. Percy starts to give some advice. <laughs> straight up impertinent Percy. Um, Tartarus is going to be worse for you than anyone else, he says straight up to Will. <laughs> and Annabeth hits him. Yeah, and Annabeth slaps him on the shoulder. He's like, what? I'm not wrong. The <laughs> <laughs> parallel or not parallel between Percy and Nico on these two pages where Nico thinks of something he could say that would be true but would, would not help the discussion and doesn't say it. And then Percy thinks of something he could say would be true, wouldn't help the discussion, and does say it. Yes. And you just know in that moment Nico is like, oh, Percy is so unrefined and, like, has no filter. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, this is the second part of this conversation. Um, the real advantage here is that you two – quote, have each other. This is so important. I underlined like every single thing <laughs> on this page and for the rest of this chapter, because truly I was thinking about the nature of this book, like in its structure as a whole. And you could think, because the whole time I was reading it, I was like, wow, this book is about the relationship between these two characters. Like that is what this book is about. That's the journey of the book. Of course, the physical journey the plot is going to Tartarus um but those two things are the same it's not even like there's the relationship aspect and there's the Tartarus aspect so there's like the characters and the plot which usually is mm -hmm. what I will say like a Rick Riordan 
Reardon verse book feels like. It's like, okay, we yeah. have this very serious plot at hand. And then while we're doing this, there will be some tidbits about information. There'll be some tidbits about relationships and like things will come into play. Friendships will change. People will get together, whatever. But this book, like the act of going to Tartarus and the act of this relationship growing closer are the same because as we establish on this page, it's 73 in our books. Um, the being together is what made the difference for the two of us. So the, 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 um, well, how do you say the conflict of the plot is that they have to make it through Tartarus, but in order to make it through Tartarus, it's also the conflict of their relationship because they have to learn how to rely on each other. Yeah. So I love the fact, like the power of love in a realistic way, because like, you know how in kid shows, it's just like, this is all going wrong, but it's okay. Power of friendship. And that fixes it with no explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like in this, we can still have the heartwarming power of love thing, except it's, it actually makes sense. And we're yeah. not just getting, we're not going to explain this. It's just some magical rainbow. We all love each other thing. Whereas in this, it's like, this is going to help you guys get through this mentally. It may not save the world, but because you have each other down there and because you have someone you love down there who will support you, it's going to be easier. I just love how we can have the combination of actually being realistic so that we're not smacking ourselves in the head going, this is ridiculous, but also yeah. the heartwarming power of love stuff. Yeah, they really break it down. They're like, it's about reminding each other about the world above. It's about jokes, lifting your spirits, telling stories, again, with the framing device, anything, having a companion makes all the difference down there. Which of course, as elderly people, Carter and I can be like, wow, let's think about Tartarus as as a metaphor for life and having a partner and a companion in life, people you can rely on. It really does make all the difference. Elderly people. <laughs> Young people just Wouldn't you say, up. Tom, isn't life all about <laughs> meaningful relationships with people? It is. Okay, I quickly wanted to ask, how old were Samuel and Diego when they came on the podcast? Because if I'm younger than them, then this is the youngest and oldest guests you've had on the podcast. Yes. <gasps> that is such I a good question. Diego was 13, 14, 13? 14, 14, I think. You're 14. Well, I think then it still counts. All right. So youngest and oldest guests simultaneously. We've had. This is so special. <laughs> I'm having such a good time. <laughs> oh my, so am I. Hey, when are you um, having Patty? Who's my favorite guest? Kyle. Kyle with the great <laughs> accent. It's Kyle coming from. <gasps> yeah. Kyle Prue. Wow. I Shout out to Kyle. <laughs> I texted all those are like so like Kyle, Mike, Ola, Jackson. Those are all the members of my Becky. Those are all my college improv friends. Yeah. So I texted them all at once like a few months ago and I was like, who's gonna read the Sun and the Star? Who can come on the show? And they were all like, come on to talk about the TV show. So everyone will be back for Disney Plus, but you know, you gotta we all have to bully them into reading the Sun and the Star. Yeah. Kyle's writing a book right now, so he's he's busy. He's writing a book. Dad loved yeah. Kyle. Listening he's to like author. he's published. He has a trilogy, right? Yeah, he has a published trilogy, but he's working on something. Oh my god, am I gonna announce this? Oh. <laughs> something like, <laughs> something <laughs> got picked up by like Penguin Random House, I think. Um, wow. That's not fully oh, announced yet. Yeah, what a silly guy. <laughs> yeah, Dad, Kyle's your favorite, and you also like Mike Jackson and Ola. That's true. Um, is there any? We, I mean, obviously, again, we could have read this entire chapter out loud, but other things we want to hit here in this conversation. I'm going to quickly hit a moment where Percy says, Nico went through Tartarus alone. 
Well, maybe not totally alone, but he certainly didn't have someone alongside him who carried who cared about him and was invested in making sure he survived the journey. Honestly, I don't know how he did it. Nico's ears burned. He wasn't sure if the awe in Percy's voice made him feel pleased or resentful. Oh. I find this really so rich because we have gotten a little bit of this before, but not this deeply, not from Nico's perspective, not with the prospect of going back to Tartarus looming ahead of us, not with Nico being in a relationship and the dynamic and the implication of Percy saying this being kind of different, but also maybe still a little bit the same in ways that feel invalidating or um, uh, uh, a little condescending, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely the same as Percy kind of patronizing him because that's like a common theme with their relationship throughout the books where yeah. Nico to Percy and Percy's just like, oh, come here, you're, you're a kid. You're like my little brother. And Nico's just infuriated by that and I mean I can yes. see where he's coming from because the one thing I really hate is being patronized and so I can absolutely see how this would be incredibly oh, oh my god listen me too and that is like my the one thing that I will blow my blow my lid I will lose my cool when people are patronizing but also yeah. like when Percy's patronizing him it is in a very uh Confucian sense where it's not that he doesn't respect Nico it's that he thinks that um you know age relationships are you know where ones in which two people have equal value but um do not have the same obligations and mm -hmm. like their jobs are different you know i think percy really is looking at this and being like nico is like a really strong person who is um like to whom i i should be giving advice and like not revealing certain aspects of my life that are hard so that i can listen and be um you know a strong receptive ear and source of guidance as opposed to um you know, a uh, uh, total one-to-one -one peer where we do the same things for each other and mean the same things to each other. Yeah, um, and there's the addition of Percy just being Percy. Like, it's kind of just who, who he is as a character. Like, he doesn't think it through before he talks. He says whatever he, he says whatever he thinks of, and he's kind of like, yeah, I'm, like, kind of the reigning authority on this now. Like, I've, I've done all of this, and he, not in, like, a braggy way, but in just a kind of he genuinely wants to help people way because he's a really kind mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And so it doesn't occur to him that this might come across come across as patronizing or anything. Exactly. It's just like, well, I'm I'm just I'm just trying to be helpful, guys. It's, it's it's okay. Yeah, and I really think it's not patronizing, but there's I also think there's really no way that Nico would feel that it's not patronizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that is Nico's reality. <laughs> um we get reminded about small bob. Small bob is important. This is the part where I was like major monogram and Carl like dispatching a mission to uh parry the platypus <laughs> like i was like wow this is like really our like video game moment we are like annabeth is like and one more thing don't forget about bob's cat make sure you bring him home and then they sign off yeah stop doofenshmirtz bring them both home if you can so yeah. much context here for me so, so <laughs> much stuff tom the next thing you need to do is watch phineas and ferb phineas and ferb Phineas and Ferb is one of my father's favorite television shows of the past, like, 10 years. <laughs> okay. My father, it would probably be Hannah Montana. There we go. Yeah. Mark Ito has a little bit more of a, of a I would say, a razzle-dazzle musical sensibility than my father, who does enjoy an old-timey movie musical, but of a more Fred Astaire variety than a Barbra Streisand variety, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, by the way, Hannah Montana is a Disney Channel show. It's like Liv and Maddie. Okay. <laughs> 
Oh, oh my God. So Generational difference. <laughs> yeah, Maddie, did you like I did not. I just kind of watched it recently because I realized that there were quite a few Disney Channel shows I hadn't watched mm. that most people hadn't. So I was like, oh, well, I'd better watch these. So now I've watched Jesse and Bunked and uh, Liv and Maddie and all of that. I know wow. a rising amount about Liv and Maddie because I have I've done a lot of cooking with children watching Liv and Maddie in the background. <laughs> Thing where he want where he wanders in and something's on the TV and he just kind of stands there and watches it and pretends that he doesn't like it but he actually does. Yes, anything. <laughs> I'm one of those blokes that can't multitask very well, so it's really difficult. There's a television on in the room. Dad, and... You like Descendants and you like zombies. You just like Disney Channel. That's true. So true. I hope work doesn't find out. Real. <laughs> Disney Hyperion right here. Disney Books. Um, mm. Disney Plus coming yeah. soon. Yes. Um, basically we sign off of this Iris message and then we have a little debrief moment with Sally, which as we said, like hashtag Percibeth pep talk, but really it's a hashtag Sally Jackson. Sally pep talk. Pep talk. Like that is the real marker of a new quest. Um, the, this conversation gets sparked by Nico walking by a photo of young Percy and Sally in Central Park. And this is new. We've never heard about this photo before. It's just a photo of them very happy and everyone looking so young. And Sally says, sometimes I need reminders of the normal good times. What with all the chaos in our lives. Despite it all, we actually did get to do some fun family stuff together. Nico turned to her. You're not afraid? Hmm, What do you mean? All this talk here today, you didn't bat an eye. Does it ever freak you out? It has, she acknowledged, and I've seen some terrible things. But at the same time, oh, I've seen some terrible things. I'll just read it. Um, there were certainly moments when I wasn't sure my son would come back. He disappeared for months that one time, remember? Nico nodded. Yeah, I was the first half-blood camper to find him in Camp Jupiter, and he was swapped with Jason Grace. Bye. <laughs> but at the same time, he's part of something wonderful now. And honestly, that makes it a lot easier. Part of what? Asked Will rubbing blue crumbs from the corner of his mouth. Did you leave any for me? Nico said. Will just smiled. <laughs> Percy's part of a great big family, said Sally. He's got friends like you and Will and many others across the globe. And all of you, at a moment's notice, would do everything in your power to save the people you love. What more could a mother ask for? Aww. <laughs> wow. That really melted my cold, cold, dead heart. You sound like my sister. She says things like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it did. My icy heart is like half melted. I could yeah. not help but think of the fandom and the community, you know, especially after the insane Son of the Star tour week. This whole Percy Jackson world is like a big, as Nico says, basically one big super dysfunctional family. And it is really cool to know that we have this book that binds us together with people from all around the world of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> all around the globe. Yeah. Mark gave a word about found family at yeah. the book tour. And, you know, I feel like sometimes in the past there have been coworkers in these books. You know, I, we, we, we've discussed this, but sometimes, sometimes it's real. Um, and 
you know, is it a bit cliche for the gay book to be the one where we, um, you know, literalize this terminology? Like, sure. But should we do it anyway? Yes. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> it's a very different perspective on Camp Half-Blood. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like it's more of, it's almost closer to the fan perspective on Camp Half-Blood because, again, we've always yes. gotten. Yes, exactly. I didn't choose this. Whereas from Will and Nika's perspective, it really is kind of almost their best option and a good option at that. Like for Will, sure, he has his mother, but he's happy at Camp Half-Blood. It's not like Percy where he's like, I miss my mother and I just I just want to be there. Will doesn't necessarily want to travel around the country with his mother. And as far as Nico goes, Camp Half-Blood is his home. Like besides the underworld, Camp Half-Blood's his home. And so we're finally getting that Camp Half-Blood is a really good place to be with lots of support and Dionysus doing therapy and just Chiron sometimes being helpful and <laughs> Valley usually being helpful. And yeah, so it's just kind of nice to get that perspective on Camp Half-Blood. Yeah. And like you said, Carter, not to self-actualize these terms in the gay book, but really I felt like this was Mark Mark's hand being like, yes, as queer people, we suffer and things are hard but also we would not give that up for anything because it is our community and it is um, what we have, you know, to guide yeah. us through our life, um, which is very sweet. So Nico says he wasn't sure what awaited him and Will in the coming days, but he grabbed Will's hand as they walked back to the subway. If they were going to survive Tartarus, then it was time to believe what Annabeth and Percy had told them. They'd have to do it together. Time to be vulnerable, Nico. Wow. It's been a wild ride. This has been <laughs> such a wild episode for so many reasons. Um, <laughs> I think we're going to leave it there. And we will see you a week from now to talk about The Descent. To talk about Town the Musical, maybe. Um, <laughs> oh my god, I'm literally seeing Town on Wednesday. So I will be prepped and like, I mean, I'm seeing it for like the sixth time, but I will be yeah. extra ready <laughs> to talk about it for our next recording. Oh, is, is Hades Town the Percy Jackson musical? <laughs> no, you know, Hades not Town. No. Not no. <laughs> it won the Tony Award in 2019 for Best Musical, and it is um, a dramatic retelling of the stories of Orpheus and Eurydice and Hades and Persephone through um, American folk music. And it's Erica's favorite musical. It's like Aaron Sorkin writes your dialogue. It's like the way you roll that out is just extraordinary. Carter, do you feel like you've been written by Aaron Sorkin? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Um, Wow. This is usually the time where as we wrap up, we ask if you guys have anything you'd like to promote for any reason. And you can always say, no. (laughs) I don't. <laughs> Dad, you work for Netflix. Surely you should promote Netflix. <gasps> Stop what? it. Tom, is Shadow and Bone going to get renewed for a season <laughs> three? Tell you. You won't even tell me stuff. Wow, not us having an industry person in our midst and not... Um... I have just finished watching season two of Shadow and Bone and I loved it. And I would be very surprised if... It, if I, I don't actually have personal knowledge because I haven't looked it up on the secret database. Careful. Oh my god, the secret database that exists that Tom has access to? We have secret Netflix. We have, there's this, there's, which I'm allowed to talk about because it's public knowledge. I can't tell you what's on it. It gets yeah. stuff early. 
So you, yeah, you... the media center. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I see you've heard of this stuff. Yes. I, have, I have limited access to certain things for one of my jobs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this just became I'm industry fame. Power. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> While we're on the subject of Netflix, I guess I'll promote The Dragon Prince because it's my favorite yeah. show. That's one of our shows. You guys should watch it, but um, be prepared that it may cause you to question all your relationships and think about whether you actually like your life or whether you're just incredibly lonely as a person. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and while, while we're at it, um, oh, yeah, The Owl House as well. But, again, you'll get very upset because it got cancelled. So um, watch at your own risk. <laughs> I have a similar relationship with the Dragon Prince that I do with Percy Jackson in that I know <laughs> awful lot about it and I've never watched a single episode. <laughs> oh, my God. My parents are the same way. You know, I've recounted every plot of everything I've ever encountered to them, and you know, <laughs> since I was born. So they consume media through me. Yes. Please say hi to your parents from me. I feel I feel. <laughs> Dad, oh. you have watched an episode of The Dragon Prince because you watched the flashback one where you stood there and went, "This is really good. Maybe I'll watch it sometime." And then now, as oh. I'm cooking, and and you people watched <laughs> the background, you were sitting on the couch next to me. Well, I got distracted. You know what it's like. Wait, Tom, are you allowed to tell us what your title is? As Carter and Erica, as people who are like fascinated by media, like, what's your position? I I work in the visual effects department. I'm um, what? Yes. Uh, there's a there's a section of of Netflix which is I'm on the, the studio side which is the 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 people who make the stuff and I work in the visual effects department getting stuff done. Oh my god, you're a wow. VFX artist? No, I I I help. I used to be a producer on on the vendor side, getting getting VFX done. Um, I'm a an organizer rather than an actual VFX artist, but I've worked with a lot of wow. VFX artists and they do an extraordinary job. His name is oh in the credits God. of the first Jumanji film. <gasps> nice! Maddie's name I is in the credits of a film called, which one did you get in, Maddie? You were in, yeah. was it Mary and Max? The production baby, because I was yeah. born when I was working on it. Totally, <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Wow. So cool. It is. Wow. I love that, that little glimpse into your life. <laughs> that rocks. All right. Well, thank you both for being here and taking time out of your day, your Saturday, Maddie, and your work trip, Tom, uh, to be here. <laughs> it was so much fun. Thank you so this much. This makes sense why you were in LA now. I understand. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for having us. This was, this was really great. I don't even have the words. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, we, will, we will see the listeners next time for, as we said, the descent into the underworld. Chapters to come. We'll figure it out soon with a very special guest. So stick around. Bye, guys. Bye, all. Bye. Bye.